for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, good morning and welcome to Thursday's edition of the Sonia Poulton Show on today's News Talk TNT. I just want to extend my thanks to all the wonderful people I met out on the streets of London over the last two days outside the High Court. Obviously, you know, we were there because Julian Assange's uh, lawyers have made their case for why the WikiLeaks founder should be allowed to appeal against the extradition to the US to face espionage charges. Assange's lawyer want to ask an appeal court to block the extradition. But in order to do that, his lawyers first have to get permission to do that. The British legal system is nothing if not convoluted, lengthy and damn expensive. But I do want to say thank you so much. The, As I say, the response has actually been incredible. We have so many viewers out there and people have been so grateful for the alternative coverage to, well, what sort of passes as news on mainstream legacy media. And uh, so with regard regard to the last few days, I will have guests coming up who will be able to analyse in more detail about what's been taking place. And if Dame Victoria Sharp and Justice Jeremy Johnson, who have presided over this latest decision, choose to deny him the right to appeal against extradition, then extradition will commence within days, according to WikiLeaks. And uh, that, of course, is incredibly scary. Yesterday, the US government lawyer Claire Dobbin Casey claimed that criminal charges were brought against a because he named sources. This was strenuously denied later on in the day on X by Dr. Ian Overton. He said this was categorically untrue, that the names were redacted. He said he had personally worked with Julian to ensure that. So, you see, they like to play fast and loose, don't they, with information. Claire Dobbin also alleged that Assange sought to recruit other hackers. She said this case was about his alleged criminality and nothing to do with politics. To quote her, she said... He went far beyond the acts of a journalist who was merely gathering information. And she continued, his prosecution is based upon the rule of law and evidence. The appellant's prosecution might be unprecedented, but what he did was unprecedented. But who believes that this is not political? Certainly not the people that I met out on the streets of London over the last couple of days. And I, for one, do not. The last 14 years of Assange's life have been marked by political decision making. The worry is that if Assange is extradited to face those espionage charges in the US, then he will not survive it. Certainly that's what his wife is saying. We were already told that he was not well enough to attend court, either physically or via video link. And then we learned that he wasn't even well enough to follow proceedings online. So the concern for his health is a very, very real one. And, uh, you know, the US case is not simply that Assange has published material, but that he conspired with then Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, to steal and disclose classical information. The Casey, the American Casey, uh, on behalf of the American case, said it was these facts which distinguished Assange from other media outlets. And it was this which sets him apart for this prosecution and not his political opinions. They were very keen to stress this because they know the world is watching. This is what Stella has said. She's absolutely right. And thanks to, honestly, I'm so grateful. I'm so 
I feel so blessed actually to be working for TNT at this moment in time because I believe that our output was so different to what was taking place out there. I saw Kim uh, Staten, who we interviewed um, outside the court. He came and joined us at Dailies. And I also saw him interviewed on Talk TV, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, by Julia Hartley Brewer. And Kim had a, a fairly dreadful time and he said talked about that later. And uh, it was the same scurrilous nonsense, you know, the attacks. Oh, Julian Assange, bad American secrets, good. Um, and, uh, you know, Julian's lawyers had argued on the first day, because the first day was for Julian's lawyers to set out his case, why he should be allowed the right to appeal extradition. And uh, his lawyers had argued the day before that the publication of the unredacted cables was accidental, if indeed that had happened. But um, if it had been deliberate, they said, the public interest outweighed anonymity of the individuals. The lawyers also noted that no harm to any of the named had been proven. And uh, also the, the US lawyers came back at that and argued that some of the individuals were subject to fleeing their homes, disappearing, losing jobs. But none of it could be proven to be as a result of having their names revealed, if indeed that was the case, because they're still arguing about it. So Assange is hoping, as I say, that the High Court will grant his request for a full appeal hearing. This is a man who, for really 14 years, has been given very little chance to have his say. It's appalling. And as I say, if this fails and they deny him that chance, all UK legal avenues have pretty much been exhausted now. They'll have to apply to the European Court of Human Rights to attempt to block the UK from allowing him to be extradited. And it looks like, according to Wiki, we will be expecting a decision within days. So literally, Julian Assange's life could change in, uh, uh, well, an outstanding way in a matter of days. And I just want to say before we bring in Gemma, have you noticed there's a narrative shift going on regarding COVID vaccines? Don't really like to call them vaccines. We know what they are from companies like Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. We now hear a leading report has linked them to, and this is what the mainstream is reporting, slight increases in heart, brain and blood disorders. We've been telling you that for a very long time. And on that note, I'm going to bring in Gemma Cooper. Be right back. Clashing on the controversies. It's a woke society and I am fed up with it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And we are back with Gemma Cooper. Lovely to see you, Gemma. Thank you so much for joining us at the High Court over the last two days. Your interventions were absolutely wonderful, really, you know, solidified the team. Fantastic. Totally appreciated. How are you today? Oh, I'm very well. I, I, it's a shame I wasn't actually with you in person uh, outside the High Court. I, I, I was studio-based monitoring the, the feeds that were coming out of the case. Um, there were so many live feeds coming out. The facts were coming out thick and fast. Um, and so somebody had to kind of stay across what all the lawyers were saying and arguing on the many, 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 many points of law um, that the Americans especially are grasping at any straw possible, aren't they? Oof. They're desperate. They're desperate to make this a criminal prosecution because that's the whole tenant on which this hangs. Uh, if it's got to be criminal uh, proceedings that, that allow for the extradition, if it's politically motivated, it can't happen. That is the agreement between the US and the UK. I mean, as you rightly say there, if they go in his against 
at him uh, and say, no, you haven't got the right to appeal this, then it can go to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and the, But then that's another waiting game for Julian Assange, as I was just discussing with Dean Mackin an hour ago. And, and if they if they rule in his favour and say, yes, you can appeal, that's another hearing. That's, an, right. that's the appeal hearing. It just goes on and on and on. And already we've heard about his mental and physical health. I mean, how much can one person take? And it's not just him, it's Stella as well. I do think she deserves credit for the way she's yes. handled herself. And the way she's behaved over the last, well, 14 years, basically, well, um, since they've been married. But, um, you know, she, she's, she's remained dignified. She's remained, she's a human rights lawyer herself. So she understands yes. exactly what's at stake. But, you know, standing up in front of the crowds, addressing the crowds, a very professional. I mean, this is her husband. I, I would, I don't know if I could keep that composure uh, myself, um, you know, given that what might be at stake here for her. Um, I just think it's an incredibly powerful uh, 48 hours that we've witnessed. Uh, and it's not over yet. It isn't over. It really isn't. I don't think we, I'm not sure that that is entirely true about hearing the result in the next few days. I think I think it's more likely to be a couple of weeks. They've said March at the earliest, but we're not quite in March yet. Yeah, that's next week. I, I think there is so much to consider here. And the judges know that the eyes of the world are upon them. And the judges know about the uh, the, the kind of uh, links that have been made between, especially one of them, and establishment links, although I think all high court judges have very strong establishment links. So they're well aware of what this means too. Um, but yes. yeah, as you rightly say, it's great that so many people are aware of TNT and so many people are applauding our coverage, which is you know really what we're here to do. That's our job, um, is take it away from the mainstream ridiculousness, show that the narrative is being controlled here, just like it was controlled four years ago. Even that seems to be breaking down, though, with the, the well, that, that study on the vaccines, it's a global study. It's a global study involving 130 billion shots. So you can't really ignore the results. But even though that everyone's saying it's just a small increase in heart problems, just a small right. increase in myocarditis, but it's still crumbling. It's still crumbling, slowly but surely. The narrative on that is crumbling. The narrative on Julian Assange, many people thought for a long time he was a wrong un, he was a rapist. People are realizing now that wasn't the case at all. Narratives are crumbling on a daily basis. In fact, a story I'll talk about in a minute shows how it's crumbling in another area too. Narratives are crumbling. It might take a while for us to chip away at them, but they are crumbling. We've all got work to do, people. We've all got work to do. Yeah, absolutely. But we're here, aren't we? And we are chipping away at it. Absolutely. I, and I agree with you. I have to say, I personally feel it will be several weeks before we get a decision. But I was just literally quoting, WikiLeaks seems to think it's going to be within days, which is interesting why they think that. But there you go. But you're absolutely right. The narrative is crumbling. And uh, and it is thanks to to. TNT, honestly, you know, I had a chance over the last couple of days to look around and say, who else is doing what we do? And actually, Gemma, we are truly unique in the field about, you know, the, the coverage 24-7 is phenomenal. Who has that level of output? And and we're we're lucky, you know. We don't face global regulators. We are unique, and you know, not to spend too long, you know, bigging ourselves up. But I think we should here credit where credit is due because it I was a global so. effort. Yeah, it was a team effort. It was, you know, the tech team based in Australia, uh, you know, and all of us doing our different bits and keeping across the information, keeping it live, keeping it relevant, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and we're relatively new compared to the, you know, this is just a two-year operation. And normally the first two years of a company is the most difficult years. Well, we're flourishing because we yes. are doing the right thing. We're taking on the mainstream. Absolutely. We're doing the right thing. So, you know. Absolutely. So I applaud the team. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making us safe and secure out there to be able to do our jobs. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more, Gemma. Fantastic team. So what are we going to be discussing today? 
Well, I thought I'd bring a positive story to the table. It's a follow-up story to the one we discussed last week, which caused a huge public backlash. Um, and it's again, it's this about narratives crumbling. So do you remember we covered that story last week about the Mo National Multiple Sclerosis Society in the UK, a huge, big charity. They the fired- The 90-year-old. That's right. The 90-year-old volunteer, she's dedicated 60 years of her life for free to raising money for this charity for, for multiple sclerosis. Her husband died of multiple sclerosis. She's a really, truly wonderful woman, still volunteering at the age of 90. She got unceremoniously dumped and fired as a volunteer last week after um, having an email exchange with a colleague who asked her to use pronouns. You know, she, him, they, all of that. She, her, rather. It's never him, is it? She, her, they. Um, and she didn't understand what pronouns were. Um, um, so she she said, I'm sorry, I don't understand this. Uh, they said, right, you don't fit our diversity and inclusion policy. And they fired her. Now, this went public. It went viral. And the charity has today. Well, actually, it was yesterday. It was yesterday. They issued this huge groveling apology. <laughs> they've realized they've really misjudged the public mood. The public don't like this narrative at all. Pronouns and and, and gender bind, all of the stuff we talk about here on, on TNT. Um, the charity has apologized. And it, initially, it doubled down when this story broke and said, no, we've got a diversity policy. This 90-year-old didn't fit it. She has to go. Uh, misjudge the public mood on that one. People with, uh, said they were going to withdraw their financial support for the charity. They were going to stop fundraising. They were going to stop making donations. They said it was an absolute travesty, this poor woman. So yesterday they said, we admit we fell short. Uh, we made a mistake. We should have had more conversations with our volunteer, Fran Itkoff, um, and we we should have made her understand why we have this diversity policy. It was a recently implemented diversity, equality and inclusion policy, they say. Um, they have apologised to her directly. It's unsure whether she'll return to the organisation to continue her fundraising efforts. I'm sure she's got a very different opinion of the organisation now. Uh, what's very interesting, though, Sonia, is the comments that have accompanied this story that People have seen right through this charity's apology and they said, you're not sorry at all. You're just sorry it went public and you got caught out. Uh, initially, you said that you stuck to your guns on this and you, 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 you think your diversity policy is a good thing. Um, the huge, huge backlash still. They're saying it's too little, too late. The damage is done yeah, and you'll feel the hit in your financial coffers. And I do tend to agree with a lot of those comments. The reason I bring this to the table, of course, is this just is not one charity. So many public organizations across the world, so many organizations full stop, public or private, are implementing these global diversity inclusion policies, pronouns. You know, they are more important, it seems, than the work of the organizations themselves. And woe betide you if you do not fit into them. What's happening, though, is the backlash and the, and the crumbling of this narrative, too, where these policies might be implemented. You know, are they coming from common purpose here in the UK? Are they coming from globalist think tanks? Wherever they're coming from, the public don't like it, and the public are making their voices heard on this, on this particular issue, as we've seen with the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. So that's where we are with this today. We're seeing narratives are crumbling at every everywhere you look, Sonia, they're beginning to crumble down. Oh, so I think anxiety. So that's where we are with this today. We're seeing narratives are crumbling at every everywhere you look, Sonia, they're beginning to crumble down. Oh, so I think it's a it's a great story. Um, and I, I hope the 90-year-old lady doesn't return. I wouldn't want to. I'd go and take my fundraising efforts somewhere else if I was her. Um, but yeah, that's where we are. That's the position as it stands this morning. Well, that's wonderful. But we both know, of course, that this is, as you say, this is about backlash as opposed to them having a change of heart, right? Yes. Yes, I would say that. Yes. The cynic, the cynic in me says that too. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it is what it is, isn't it? You know, we know how it works. They, you know, because as you say, they initially doubled down, but the backlash was so great. I put out, instantly, I put out the clip of you talking about it last week. Phenomenal response. Many people hadn't heard it about it at that point. And they were absolutely horrified because, you know, people like they relate to it so strongly. That could be my grandmother people were saying. And uh, all that level of service was really quite shocking to be so summarily dismissed as if you're nothing. So uh, they don't deserve any better. They don't. But uh, we wish her the absolute best without a shadow of a doubt. This has been Thursday's edition with Gemma Cooper. Thank you, Gemma. And I will be right back. TNT's Chris Smith. You know, there's nothing humane in the boat people, people smuggler trade. Nothing in you. Nothing humane about it or compassionate about it at all. This has always been one of the great delusions of the left. And if they didn't learn that lesson from the tragedy of the uh, Rudd and Gillard government, when over a thousand people drowned on, on the oceans to the north of Australia, if they didn't learn that lesson about a thousand people, including women and children drowning, well, they're very slow learners and they're bound to repeat that mistake. But that's because their ideology superseded the practicalities of the issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. Albanese from the left was always ideologically bound, almost fanatical, hysterical, about saying if you don't believe in taking all the refugees, then you're some sort of barbarian, a racist, a bigot from Western Sydney. Chris Smith on today's News Talk TNT. steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. You are indeed back to the Sonia Poulton Show on today's News Talk TNT. And I'm just reading some of your wonderful comments. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning, Chris Smith, who said, good morning, everyone. I had a, I had a great day yesterday at the Julian Assange Courthouse. Met so many interesting people. The highlight was meeting lovely Sonia. It was great to finally meet her. Chris, that was just so wonderful to meet you after all these years. Chris has been incredibly supportive of my work and of freedom and truth. So it was really, truly wonderful. As I say, it was so magnificent to meet so many great TNTers. So uh, thank you for that. I am delighted today to be joined by somebody who has an incredibly interesting history and I think can reflect really well on what has taken place regarding Julian Assange. He is Adrian Hanks. He's an author, a coach, a psychotherapist and a speaker. And more importantly, and I know you lot don't know this out there in TNT land, but we went to primary school together. How are you, Adrian? I'm really good. That seems like only yesterday, Sonia, the primary school. Does it really? Does it? <laughs> I'm not quite sure that I would say the same thing, but, you know, absolutely yeah. lovely to see you here with us. Of course, yeah, born, and, born and raised in England. And how long have you lived in Australia? I've been there for 36 years and I've just uh, returned to the UK now. I'm here for a little while. Uh, so it's good to be uh, sitting here in the cold morning with you rather than in 32 degree heat. So it's a bit different. <laughs> Well, it is absolutely lovely to have you with us. Of course, you wrote the novel 2084. Give, give our viewers some idea of where you're coming from regarding that novel. Yeah, absolutely. Look, in 1984, I was living in Berlin. I moved to Berlin when I was 19 years old. I, I escaped. I said that the UK had two people in it. There was myself and Maggie Thatcher. There wasn't room for both of us. So I left, left Maggie on the throne. And uh, I went to Berlin, lived there for four years. And uh, I read Orwell's 1984 and I've always, always had this idea of writing a, like a sequel to that. So three years ago, I published 2084, 
which is rather than dystopian view, it's a very utopian, hopeful view of the future with 2084. So it's sort of the lineage of what Orwell put in place with um, with his book. So you'd have to read it to find out more. <laughs> and uh, indeed, indeed, they should. And uh, so you've been very much part of the pushback of what's been taking place over the last four years. You didn't accept the COVID narrative at all, did you? I certainly didn't. Uh, I was in Canberra for two weeks, Sonia, when they had the big rally of uh, about 800,000 to a million people there. Um, I was on every demonstration I could, particularly the borders, uh, because silly enough, I lived at the time just um, north of the border, Queensland, New South Wales, and it's a border town. And uh, you could be one side of the town and not go to the other side of the town because that's where the border was. And it was ludicrous uh, behaviour, uh, as it was right across the planet. So, yeah, I was a frontliner and... Um, yeah, did not take the narrative, did, you know, none of this, none of that, just absolutely refused, um, been on that journey for a long time. It's, uh, so, yeah, a frontliner um, by all, <laughs> by all means. Yeah, we, in uh, Australia, it was, a, you know, hold the line, hold the line. Yes. And there were many of us that did, and um, I've got some really good friends who did hold the line, and, um, you know, I've got friends also that did, uh, you know, choose a Jabberwocky, and that's their freedom. Um, I'm all about freedom. Um, as long as it wasn't through coercion, that's the that's the part. Sadly, that there was coercion, uh, there was manipulation, there were lies, there was deceit, and um, so I'm a big part of that. And of course, you know what's happening right now with uh, with Julian, um, you know, in London, um, you know, I was just horrific. And just a bit of feedback on Sonia in terms of the Australian perspective on that. It was Please. only less than two weeks ago that the Australian government decided to have a vote on whether they support. Julian, and I don't know whether the viewers know this, but the numbers of votes, um, they were 84, sorry, 86 votes for, but they were 42 against. And that was the, um, and that was the Liberals or the Conservatives under Peter Dutton. He opposed the bill that was put forward by Andy Wilkie, who was the independent. Andy Wilkie is a Dan in Tasmania. He's an incredible uh, politician. If you ever want to follow up and interview Andy Wilkie, I'd highly suggest he's a, incredible man he tries to stop the gambling in um in, in tasmania and australia too so he's a, a really good decent human being but 86 to 42 can you believe it so people say australia was behind julian no the politicians were not fully you know the liberals opposed it because they're in bed with you know the americans obviously um so very sad you know um very very sad for the sad days when people think that australia is supporting julian when they're representative of the people obviously uh the politicians in some way so it's only you know two-thirds this negligence because the fact is, is and I, I, we've heard this repeated many times outside the high court over the last two days is julian is us if 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 people think that it begins and ends with him they've got another thing coming right what you know that they, they, they have him they will clamp down on the rest of us so you know obviously last two days the uh, the the whole point of the last two days is that his lawyers are have made an application for to be able to appeal against the extradition hearing and if if they are not even allowed to appeal against it then he will be extradited of course there is the recourse to the european court of human rights but we shall see how that goes and as Gemma said quite rightly all of this stuff takes so much time while well, that man's life is essentially ebbing away adrian what does it say about us that julian assange has been banged up effectively for 14 years Look, it's incredible. And it, you know, coming back to 1984 with George Orwell, I mean, he wrote the scapegoat in his novel was Emmanuel Goldstein, you know, who was fictitious in a sense. But 
um, as we know, you know, this is just a scapegoat route. Uh, they needed somebody to, you know, hang, draw and quarter. Sadly and unfortunately, it was Julian who got in the firing line. And uh, he's been in that position for, you know, for decades now because they had to have somebody to to have there as a scapegoat. And But the irony of, you know, people standing out, I, I listened to the, should I dare say, at the BBC of their reporting um, two days ago of the um, of the trial. And the irony that, you know, they're, they're standing there in the street not realising that their jobs are next, you know, their freedom is next right. um, while they're reporting. And it's, it's it, I think I, I said yesterday in one of your comments, you know, it's ludicrous um, that this is actually happening in our society right now. But it is. And I think the more we make people aware of what's actually happening with Julian, uh, the better, because people are unaware, Sonia, you know. If you ask people in the street who Julian Assange is, they go, oh, yeah, some Wiki, some WikiLeaks bloke that sort of, um, you know, was a, a, um, a whistleblower. And that's pretty much all they know if they don't follow shows like this, because if, if they just listen to the mainstream media, you know, they're not covering this. They're really not covering this as a... Uh, and they're no. not behind you. You can tell by the rhetoric and, you know, the, the language they use. They're, they're certainly not behind him. They feel completely detached from him, don't they, the reporters out yeah. there? I've been listening to the coverage as well because I do. I like to take everything in as much as humanly possible, yeah. including the news outlets that I don't approve of because I think it's important yeah. to find out what they're saying in order to be able to counteract their madness. But, uh, yeah, they are extremely detached from him. Adrian, we're going to shortly go to some news headlines. We will be back. We will continue this conversation. But, uh, well, yeah, no, let's let's do that now. We'll be right back. TNT Radio News. This is news. Here we go. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Venezuela's president has backed his Brazilian counterpart in condemning Israel's relentless assault on Palestinians in Gaza. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has expressed his upset over the fact that more people than ever before no longer trust the mainstream media. And the American Red Cross has confirmed people who refused to take the experimental COVID-19 jab could be receiving blood from vaccinated donors. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Thank you for joining us this morning on the Sonia Poulton Show. After two days outside the High Court, I'm here with Adrian Hanks, author, coach, psychotherapist, speaker, and all-round good guy. Yes, absolutely. And he's, uh, we're just talking about the mainstream coverage of Julian Assange. Going back to that Australian vote, Adrian, why do you think so few politicians have been prepared to stand up and be counted on this issue? Uh, because the mothership is uh, America, you know, that's the bottom line. It's, uh, you know, we curtail to uh, the Americans. It's uh, quite incredible. We are just another state in, in many respects. And I was supposed to be a, a colony of the UK, but in many respects now the Americans have taken over um, Australia and we just curtail to them. The first thing the prime ministers do in Australia when they get into office after a few weeks, they jump on an airplane and go to America. Um, and you can see that with all the politicians that come in. Uh, they go and get their, their standing orders. They're told what they need to do. I mean, Pine Gap is in, you know, one of the biggest um, American bases in the world is in the middle of Australia. And Australians aren't allowed to go there. 
you know, so um, it's it's quite an incredible journey right now with the Americans. And of course, they've just done the nuclear submarine um, agreement now with the UK and America, Australia. So they're right in bed. You know, it's a um, multi-billion dollar um, journey they're going to go ahead with now with this uh, nuclear submarine uh, to you know protect the waters of Australia. Um, so yeah, we're right in bed. And I think now the Americans have just got it over the Australian politicians. Um, and they just have to do exactly as they're told. Thankfully, you know, there are people like Andy Walker because people believe that um, Anthony Albanese, the prime minister, uh, was behind this call for the support for uh, Julian Assange. And he wasn't. It was Andy Wilkie, but he's taking all the credit as a prime minister now. You know, it's taken him before Andy Wilkie stood up and said, let's have a motion. The prime minister wasn't interested. So now he's taking mm -hmm. the credit, of course, is what prime ministers do. Um, but all, all, all credit to Andy Wilkie, the in independent MP. So, yeah, they're just... You know, they just—I I, just—they remind me of the Muppet Show, Sonia. This just like you, right? It's what the two old men in the box. They just yes. a bunch of Muppets. Yeah. 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 However, yeah. saying that, there are a few politicians I don't always right. necessarily believe in their full policies. You know, Pauline Hanson and um, uh, Malcolm Roberts, etc., um, from the One Nation Party. I don't always one hundred percent believe in their policies, but they're standing up, they're speaking up. There are all the rallies. You know, the um, the Freedom Rallies. So there are some really good politicians in Australia speaking up, you know, for Julian and and for freedom and for democracy, because it's it's disappearing very quickly in Australia, sadly. What we discovered outside the High Court over the last couple of days was this isn't this isn't a political um, issue from the outside. Of course, many people believe, as do I, that this is a political issue that is impacting Julian. But in terms of the people who are supporting Julian, it's all across parties, isn't it? Although there was absolutely a lack of Tory MPs, or in fact, any MPs. I mean, I only saw Jeremy Corbyn, you know, former leader of the Labour Party outside the High Court over the last couple of days. There could have been others. I could have missed them but highly likely not is it cowardice or is it something else yeah i think it is cowardice absolutely it is cowardice and, and i think this is what julian's representing that we do have to stand up we have to do on the front line we we do have to whistleblow we do have to expose the evil that's happening on the planet i mean some of that footage that you know wikileaks put out i mean if people are not moved by that torturous cruelty then i don't know what will ever move them because that was some of the most horrific scenes certainly I've ever seen um, from a cruelty perspective, the, the, you know, uh, the, the prisons and the, the treatment of those prisoners that he exposed rightly, in my opinion. Um, and now he's being condemned for, you know, exposing. And I think this is what happened. I think they were caught, with, you know, caught with their pants down and um, they didn't like it. And now they're they're out to get Julian because of what what uh, he exposed of them. They didn't like being exposed. Um, you know, they think they were very embarrassed by the exposure and now Julian right. has to pay that price you know so it's right um, yeah it's one yeah, academic I, I, who's it just moves me it's just so sad Sonia you know that some, somebody can be treated so inhumanely you know really Absolutely. One academic I spoke to who's a media academic and has observed these sort of things for, cent not centuries, for, for decades. And uh, one of the things he said to me was, look, you compare it to other situations. Publishers do not get in prison. Journalists generally for this issue do not get in prison. Journalists routinely publish classified documents. And uh, so, you know, and th these are people who have studied this. They absolutely understand how it works. So, 
it, it's a persecution. It's a targeted persecution. I tend to agree with you, Adrian. It's about the fact that, that he embarrassed them, right? It's nothing to do with the safety or the protection of these people because there are lots of arguments about whether people's the sources were redacted or unredacted. So it's clearly not that. There's so much more going on. But Adrian, I want to talk about this, and that is you yourself found a sort of truer path to life, didn't you? You know, many years ago now. And that was when you were able to realise that the narratives that are pumped out by the likes of, you know, CNN or BBC or whatever, that's just very much a surface level of what's taking place, if indeed it really represents the truth at all. What put you on that path of truth? Uh, look, um, interesting, Sonia, going back to uh, high school, um, we were at primary school together. But when uh, a little lovely true story is I was in high school um, and we had a mock election when Maggie Thatcher came on the throne and um, I stood as an independent. I was 15 years old you know, in the last couple of years of high school. And uh, at the time on the television, there was a, a program with Citizen Smith. I do remember it. And um, I do. And Tootin, popular so, friend. That's right. So so I had Siren says the popular front is, you know, my, my name and I was Citizen Ski and because my name back then was Ski. And, <laughs> and I stood for election in the school and everybody voted and unbeknownst to me until I won. I won the election because, I, you know, I was pretty popular at school. And he was a popular guy. And, and then um, I was called into the headmaster's room and I was told that all my votes were null and void on some technical error. And of course, like everywhere across Britain, the Tories got in. So that was a wake up call for me. So, rigging at that secondary score. Are you kidding that me? Was, yeah. So <laughs> in that moment, I realised there's somebody else behind the scenes, you know, pulling the strings, which was the headmaster at the time. And because I was unpopular, you know, to the staff and the, the teachers, because I was a bit of a rebel, um, you know, with my mohawk and orange hair and all the different things I did at school. Um, yeah, they they told me some tech some technicality uh, that my votes no longer voted, and um, yeah, I was taken off the the voting register. Otherwise, I would have been I would have won the election in the high school with you know nearly two thousand children. Um, Look so that at was that. a wake up call for me, um, big wake up call. And I realised there's more to what's going on politically than I realised. And then I moved to Berlin uh, at the age of nineteen from the UK. I lived there for four years, and that's when I started reading Orwell and Kafka, and uh, you know, visiting Eastern the Eastern Bloc. Uh, became a bit of a sort of a radical socialist, if you like, and uh, as George Orwell saw, a social anarchist. That's how I see myself. Um, I think socialism is not negative. Personally, I think socialism is a wonderful thing in the right manner and the right form. Unfortunately, the socialism that's banded these days is not the right form. Uh, but back in the day, when Orwell was you know talking about social anarchism. Uh, I was right on the tail with him, and and I read a lot and got quite political. Uh, then I moved to Australia at the age of 24, and got very involved with Bob Bryan and the Green Party, um, which you know, standing in the front line in the forests and protecting the the forests and um, doing many many things with the Green Party. Then got disillusioned with the Greens, like a lot of us did. Um, but yeah, so I got political quite quite young. Um, Realised there was something else going on, and then. Um, yeah, started reading and listening to the likes of, you know, David, David Icke, you know, 25, 30 years ago and opening my eyes a little bit. But the biggest thing for me, Sonia, was when I was 28, I found my spiritual teacher, if you like, in Rudolf Steiner, who was a, a philosopher and obviously opened lots of Steiner schools and got into medicine and different things. So he's been my guru teacher for 30 years. And 
I found a spiritual path. Um, so every morning now I wake up, you know, do my meditations, get into the spiritual side of life. And yeah, I've, I've, I've changed, you know, from being a, you know, a wild little um, punk to a, a, a philosophical punk. <laughs> we love it. Absolutely love it. Give us an insight before you leave us today. Give us an insight as to what you're working on at the moment. Uh, so at the moment, I'm uh, still writing. I'm still doing a couple of novels. And um, mostly I'm working on health and well-being with people. Like I think it's essential for people to get into their health and well-being. So I'm advocating now that everybody becomes a spiritual warrior physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, uh, because it's really important that we all get into that spiritual warrior because, you know, if you think the times are tough now, I think they might be getting tougher. <laughs> oh, hallelujah to that. Adrian, I greatly appreciate you joining us this morning. I think you've got a unique perspective from the UK to Australia back again. I think this kind of like covers Julian Assange's life in many respects. Listen, take excellent care of yourself, everybody. This has been Adrian Hanks, my old school pal. Have a great day, Adrian. Take excellent care of yourself. We will be right back. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. We just have got a great example. It's on CFAC. If you Google CFAC, you'll see it. A blog that says climate alarmists like Senator Whitehouse are fueling anxiety in young people. Now, Sheldon Whitehouse is basically a carpetbagger. He's up in Rhode Island. He came from North Carolina. He knows absolutely zero about the history of New England hurricanes. If he does know something about it, then all his posturing about how bad hurricanes are getting in New England have to be complete lies. You know why? We've just gone through the longest stretch of time in the last 150 years of no hurricane hits in New England. It's a record drought of hurricane hits on the New England coast. But you got this guy up there and he's a Rhode Island senator and he realizes that's about the only place he can get elected senator, maybe in Connecticut, but they have established Democrats there. And he just spouts off and says stuff that has nothing to do with reality. And I would love to debate this guy. It would be like having someone I'd love to wrestle, just mop the floor with them. But listen to this, this came from Bloomberg Green. In the most critical cases, climate anxiety disrupts the ability to function day to day. Children and young people in this category feeling alienation from friends and family, distress when thinking about the future, and intrusive thoughts about those who will survive, according to this guy's research, Heckman. Patients who obsessively check for extreme weather, read climate change studies, and pursue radical activism, well, they seem to be in the norm. Some devastatingly consider suicide as the only solution. Now, who is responsible for that? Who's responsible for that? Certainly not the climate, certainly not the weather. We have four times the amount of people on the planet than we did in 1930 with 128 the climate deaths. It's people like Sheldon Whitehouse. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. I want to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. I need to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. Why can't I eat, eat, eat apples and bananas? Support the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks to help provide meals to those in need. Join us at feedingamerica.org. The conversation continues with Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT.
Well, I'm glad to see the comments coming in are all echoing exactly what I think about Adrian Hanks. Lovely messages from Drumstick and Hope, Love and Peace and We Fat Shug and Peter Folder and Holly. I met Holly on the streets of London outside the dear Royal Courts of Justice. It was an absolute pleasure, as I say, to meet so many great TNTers. So we are continuing the conversation about Julian Assange about the last two days at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. I'm delighted to be joined by what actually stands for true journalism these days? And you don't get to say that very often. Taylor Hudak, just Taylor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You've been in the High Court for the last two days. Taylor is a journalist for The Last American Vagabond and uh, American, Hungarian. And we're going to be talking about, well, Assange and freedom of speech and what it all means and journalism. Journalism is not a crime, right, Taylor? Yes, exactly. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I was outside the courthouse in what may have been Julian Assange's final appeal hearing domestically in the UK. The case is now left with two high court judges who will issue a judgment determining whether or not Assange is able to appeal before the UK courts once more or if he enters into the extradition process. Still, there may be an opportunity to pursue the European Courts of Human Rights, but it is now with these two judges to make a determination on where this case goes from here. And you see, the thing is, is that you and I both, I, mean, I, I don't know your exact position on this. For me, it's unquestionably a political issue. But the fact is, is that the uh, American barristers, they have made the case that it is not political, that it is absolutely criminal. Where do you stand on that? Well, this is certainly a political case because Mr. Assange is charged with 17 counts of espionage for the receipt and publication of classified material. This is an unprecedented case. Never has a journalist been published for espionage, with espionage for conducting journalistic activity. That's precisely what's happening in this case. And that is what makes this a political case. And this was a really important point that was brought up initially by the defense, of course, when they brought forth their arguments on Monday during the first day of this phase of the extradition hearings. And they stated that under the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty, Article 4 prevents extradition to the United States for political purposes. So that in and of itself should prevent Mr. Assange from being extradited. However, the prosecution is trying to go about this in a clever way, I guess, or really sort of um, manipulating the laws here. And they're referring to the UK Extradition Act of 2003, that is domestic law, which does not include this provision, which prevents extradition from the UK to the US for political purposes. Now, the interesting point here is that you have the prosecution citing and using the treaty, of course, to extradite this man. However, when it comes to the safeguards and protections that he is afforded within this treaty, they want to ignore that. So it's quite convenient for them. But this is absolutely a politically motivated case. And at the very end of the hearing yesterday, the defense lawyer, Mark Summers, even stated that this is by prosecution. Yes, absolutely. Well, give us some idea of, of your thoughts on, on the judges, obviously, um, Dame Elizabeth Sharp, uh, Justice Jeremy Johnson. Well, well, you know, what were your observations of them in, in terms of the arguments that were being put forward? 
I noticed that they were asking quite a few questions and they seemed to be listening intensely and they did not show any inherent bias toward Assange, which is different from what we've seen during the previous hearings. And I noticed this and other journalists who were covering this case as well had also noticed the same thing, which which is a good thing. And in fact, yesterday there was a really important moment where the prosecutor kept reciting the same incorrect uh, set of facts here. She was stating that Assange had released these publications and included unredacted names. This is completely false. In fact, these documents were published by other organizations unredacted before WikiLeaks. However, she kept stating that WikiLeaks was the first to publish and that they did not redact the names when it's the opposite. And in fact, it was one of the judges who said to the prosecutor, Claire Dobbin, said, well, by the way, it was actually these other organizations who published before WikiLeaks published. And this really points to the selective nature of this prosecution. So here, Mr. Assange is being published or being prosecuted for his activities through WikiLeaks, but these other organizations are not being pursued. And then the prosecutor went on to say that the reason that these other organizations were able to obtain these documents was due to Mr. Assange, the fact that he obtained them uh, from the U.S. Army, which doesn't make much sense because then that means that Mr. Assange is responsible for the actions of other journalists. And I could tell that the judge in that moment was just not really liking this argument from the prosecutor, and, and he was uh, thinking deeply about it. I was very um, sure to be looking at their faces to try to get a sense of what was going through their minds. Of course, we can never know for sure, but I will say this, and that is that I am pretty optimistic that they are going to allow him to appeal, at least on some grounds. I, I do think they will. Now, when that decision is going to be uh, issued to the public, it's unclear. I expect maybe a few weeks or several months. Right. Interesting. So, um, so your general feeling was that, that this was being dealt with as fairly as possible. But as you said, you know, there have been issues, haven't there, before where, where judges have there have been allegations of um, vested interests. And there was a concern that these two judges may be rather too close to the British establishment. But from what you're relaying to us, Taylor, there is a sense that they were far more questioning than they've probably been given credit for. Yes, there was a difference between these two judges, I would say, compared to others. But let me be clear as well. It's I'm not going to be too optimistic in a situation. Right. I still have some, some skepticism, of course. I, I am, you know, cautiously optimistic in this situation. There were a lot of problems when it came to open justice with this case, even with this last appeal hearing. And it was up to the judges to make the determination as to which journalists can enter the courtroom and how the seating arrangements were. And it was very difficult to cover. So I want to be clear that I'm not saying that this was uh a perfectly executed case uh, by any means, but it was, I can tell a change in attitude. I will say that. Now, there's one point that I do want to make clear to some of the viewers, and that is that we learned, and this has been discussed a little bit before as well, but once Assange is, if he is extradited to the United States, again, it's unclear if he will be, and we certainly hope that that would not happen. There still is an opportunity to prevent that, of course, but if extradited, once he lands on U.S. soil, there is an opportunity for the U.S. government to bring forth additional charges, which could be treason, for example, which would make him eligible for the death penalty. And of course, European governments and the U.K. government will not extradite to countries, and that's in the uh, treaty as well, they will not extradite someone to the United States if that person is eligible for the death penalty. So this was also a point that was brought up in court in a very uh 
strong point that he could still face additional charges, namely for, say, the Vault 7 documents, which exposed uh, CIA spying on innocent civilians, rogue killings, and uh, serious corruptions on behalf of the U.S. intelligence agencies. And we know, of course, that once this publication was released, this deeply upset the CIA, embarrassed the U.S. government, and it led CIA director at the, the CIA director at the time, Mike Pompeo, to refer to WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence agency. So we have to be um, very aware here that he he could face the death penalty if they bring forth charges. And 175 years in prison is the maximum sentence that he could face. That in and of itself is is also a death sentence in a, in a sense. Yes, 100%. But the US, of course, they're very keen to play down any ideas like this. They they say they've given assurances of fair treatment, but uh, Assange's team say that can't be trusted. It is absolutely possible he'll be treated disproportionately. And as you outline, once he touches down on American soil, so it's about getting him there, isn't it? It's about getting possession of him. Absolutely. That's my sense. And we know that there was an article that was released in Yahoo News that reveals that there were serious plans to kidnap him or addition him to the United States. However, they were hesitant to do so because they did not have any charges against him. And then shortly thereafter, they decided to charge him around 2016, 2017, which was another point that was raised in court by the defense, which is that these publications that he is charged with were released around 2010. So why did it take six or seven years for right. these charges against him to be brought forward? And it it could be, again, this is circumstantial evidence, but one of the points addressed was that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, announced that it was preparing to investigate the U.S. government due to the revelations by WikiLeaks, and they would need Julian Assange to help in that investigation. And then shortly thereafter, uh, the CIA director, as I said, started to refer to WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence agency, and this has some legal weight, and it did instill a feeling of hostility and aggression toward WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Do you know, it's it's so interesting. One of the things that uh, our reporter, Gemma Cooper, was talking about earlier was about the weight on Stella Assange and, and how just incredible she's been throughout all of this. She, she, you know, talks about it with such incredible clarity, given how emotional this must be for her. But one of the things that she said repeatedly over the last two days is the world is watching. Did you get a sense that the judges were absolutely aware that that more people than ever are watching this case with interest? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. And I think that's why they were quite strict with the press and those who are allowed to enter into the courtroom is because they know this is a very high profile case. Both days when I uh, approached the courthouse to enter into the courtroom, I was really blown away by how many people were present outside the courthouse. It was more than usual. I would say several hundred were there and they were there very early in the morning. I want to say like 6 a.m. I heard and they were there all day long showing their support for Assange, protesting, demonstrating all peacefully, of course. And it just shows how unpopular this continued prosecution is. And I think it's time that he be released, of course, that time has come already. He should have been released a long a long time ago. He should have never been imprisoned. He should have never been charged because this puts every journalist at risk, in particular national security journalists at risk of facing prosecution from other governments. Yes. How was it received when his team was talking about the plots against him, such as the alleged CIA plot? How was that you know, received by the judges? 
Yes, that's an interesting question. So they listen intently. I do not think my best memories, I do not think that they followed up too much on this point, but I did, I can say that the prosecution did not get into this issue, uh, did not discuss this issue uh, much further when they had their opportunity to rebut the arguments. But I can't imagine that the judges hear this and feel comfortable. I would hope that they would not feel comfortable extraditing a man to the very country whose intelligence agency conspired to assassinate him. I hope that they feel a heavy burden on themselves if they if they were to allow this extradition to to go ahead. Um, that's my you know biggest hope here is that they have they see the humanity in all of this. And as you said, Stella Assange has been bravely advocating for his release and is obviously deeply personally impacted by this and has two sons she has to raise on her own. And it's important to remember that yes, this is a journalist who published great work, but there are others in his life, friends, family members who are deeply impacted by his being imprisoned as well. Absolutely fair point. And of course, the US lawyers were very keen to say that he's been misrepresenting this case. What did you think about that? Yes, well, they tried to separate Julian Assange's actions from that of a journalist, which was just a terrible argument to make. And again, I was able to speak to other journalists covering this. We all came to the same conclusion that we could not believe what we were hearing. They were trying to state that Assange was somehow um, engaging in criminal activity by asking his source at the time, Chelsea Manning, for more information, asking for you know more leaks, for more information. Well, this is what journalists do all the time. You ask <laughs> for more information. You, you try to get one last question. And this is normal activity. And they're seeking to criminalize this. This is a very dangerous precedent that could be, could be set on a global scale. And also, I had you know, I was thinking to myself, who has the right to decide who is and who is not a journalist? Should we allow public officials, lawyers, right. or judges to decide who is and who is not a journalist? I don't think so. That's a very dangerous pathway. Absolutely, it's it's often used in legal cases, though. Um, it, it, you know, it's a sort of an old trick. But uh, so, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we, we can't possibly know the outcome. We can guess. But what are your thoughts? You, are you feeling? I mean, as you said at the start, you know, we want to be optimistic and all those things. But what is your sense of of what may come from this? Yes. Yeah, so we left off the hearing with the two judges advising the two parties involved, that is the defense and the prosecution, to meet deadlines with regard to submitting the relevant documentation. And I believe that it is quite likely that we'll receive a decision not for maybe several months. And the reason I say that is just because when I look back on previous decisions made in this case, it took 10 months from for the last decision to, to come through. So if I look back on the history and expect maybe the same to happen again, then we're looking at many, many months. And then also, too, there's been some discussion about the fact that there's a U.S. election coming up. Perhaps the right. Biden administration does not want a journalist uh, being extradited to the United States. It's not a good look. And so this case may be further delayed. And also during the uh, first part of the extradition hearings back in 2020, the judge also made a point that she was considering, and she did, in fact, eventually, uh, she was considering delaying her decision on extradition back in 2020 until after the U.S. election. And she did issue her decision on January 4th of 2021. So it could be that this is dragged out even further. But we knew going into this that the extradition process is lengthy. And all the while, uh, Assange is in Belmarsh prison this entire time with some oh. of the country's 
worst criminals. And it's it, uh, it's very difficult and he is suffering and, and was quite unwell to the point where he was unable to attend the hearings. And he right. always has attempted in the past, I believe, to attend these hearings, but was unable to make it due to health. So people should also be aware of that as well. Absolutely. I just want to echo what Chris is saying in our comments. It's really good to hear what was going on in the courtroom. Absolutely. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We truly appreciate it. You giving us a bird's eye view of what was taking place in uh, Court 5, Royal Courts of Justice over the last two days. This has been Thursday's edition of the Sonia Poulton Show. That is the rather brilliant Taylor Hudak. We will see you tomorrow. Take excellent, excellent care of yourself. <laughs>